Good morning, everyone. Uh, along with Tim, I want to welcome you here. Uh, <clears throat> if you are a, a guest here with us, a special welcome. My name is Matt, and uh, it's going to be uh, another great opportunity to look into the Bible, which is what we do for uh, a big portion of our time together when we gather in person or online. So uh, turn to Esther 2, if you have a Bible with you. I'm going to pray for us uh, to kick things off. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for yet another opportunity to be able to look into your word. Uh, we're thankful, God, for the fact that life continues as the church. Uh, thank you for new baby Nolan. Uh, thank you for all the ways in which uh, things are continuing, continuing in a normal way, Lord, even though there's, there's uh, many things that are far from normal. Uh, I pray for us, Lord. Uh, I pray, God, that we would uh, continue to look for the ways that you are growing us and using us. I pray, Lord, that you would help to shape our faith in the midst of this pandemic time. And um, <clears throat> I pray for wisdom for our leaders. I pray for perseverance for us as a church and for our community. And Lord, I pray right now that you would uh, speak to us. And Lord, that we would have ears to hear. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Esther chapter 2. And um, as a way into uh, this portion of the text... Um, I want to think about a story that uh, I think is pretty familiar. Uh, in fact, it's a story that I, I'm going to guess that we all know. In fact, we probably told it when we were uh, kids. It's a story that uh, brings kind of hope and joy uh, to us, uh, but it's also one of those stories that can happen in real life. Uh, so it's, it's a fairy tale, but it's something that we see happen all around us. In fact, this story ha is not just a story, it's become a kind of story. And so the story I'm talking about is Cinderella. And the reason I say it's become a kind of story is when some, something, certain things happen, we might say, well, that, that's a Cinderella story. And by that we mean, you know, it's maybe a rags to riches story, or it's a story of someone uh, coming from the bottom and, and going all the way to the top. And um, the thing about the Cinderella story is that it works best when the main character is, is virtuous and pure. I mean, Cinderella herself, right? She was sweet. She was kind. She was a hard worker. She was kind of the opposite of her stepmother and step sisters who were, who were wretched and vile and lazy and self-serving. Um, part of the great thing about the story is that, is that in that sense, virtue overcomes evil and is rewarded. That's, that's part of the appeal. I don't think we would love the story quite so much if Cinderella was vain and self-centered and manipulative. Like if it, when she went to the ball, if she was spreading rumors about all the other women at the ball to give them a bad reputation. Or if she fooled around with the prince in the carriage before it turned into a pumpkin. I, I don't think we would tell our kids the story. Part of the, the great thing about the story is that she is virtuous. That she doesn't compromise herself morally. And the reason I bring this up is because um, it, from one point of view, you could see the story of Esther as a Cinderella story. I mean, she starts off very low, unknown in kind of the Persian community. But then she's, she's raised up to, to, be, to be queen. And there she risks her position. She risks her life to save her people. I mean, she seems like a virtuous character. And in fact, when we tell the story to kids, that is what we emphasize. We say that Esther is a, is a paragon of, of virtue and conviction who stands up for her people and her faith, which is true. But what we find here in chapter 2, it, it does tend to complicate things. Because what we realize when we read through the story in detail is that on her way up to the top, um, well, Esther does compromise. There is some confliction. She, she's not always this, this picture of perfect faith and, and conviction. And so the question I, I want to think about today is, is what kind of a person was Esther? Who was she? 
And can she, in fact, help us to grow in our own sense of faith and conviction? So, um, we're going to do sort of the same thing we did last week, which is that we are going to work through the text kind of all together. And then at the end, we're going we're gonna to pull out a few lessons for us. And so I'm going to begin uh, just with the first verse. And it reads like this. Here's chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So this is kind of a, just reminding us what's happened. The big things are talking about these things is the big party. And remember the big party, the big debacle at the end of it where King Ahasuerus wanted Vashti, his queen, to come and show herself and she refused. And so now the king is, is not angry anymore. In fact, he seems almost like he's doing a bit of soul searching. But his advisors don't allow that to go too far. We don't want a melancholy king. And so they distract him with more selfish indulgence. And so here's verses 2 to 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So once again, we see kind of the, the true nature of this Persian empire revealed. It's moral corruption, it's superficiality. If you remember, the plan was to find a better woman, someone to replace Vashti. And the sense at the time was that the problem of Vashti was her, her character. She was too willful. She wasn't uh, compliant enough. But if you notice, uh, the criteria that they're using to find a new queen has nothing to do with character. There's three criteria. That she be young, a virgin, and beautiful. So it's very clear here that uh, the priorities are superficial and for the empire, every person in the empire is simply a thing to be used. That they claim ownership over everyone and everything. Whenever they want, they can use and abuse anyone. In fact, um, this reminds me of, I'm not sure if you're going to think of this, but this reminds me of the Borg. Does anyone else ring a bell? Um, if you're like me, in the late 90s, you watched one of the greatest television shows that's ever been made, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And in that show, there was this alien race called the Borg. And the Borg, um, they were more powerful than anyone else in the galaxy. And they had this ridiculous cubed spaceship. And when they would catch up to someone, because they were faster than anyone, here's what you would see, this big cube. And here's what they would say. They would say, we are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctives to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. That's, that phrase has become synonymous with the Borg. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And that's really what life was like in the Persian Empire. Everyone, everything, they're going to take what they want to, in service to the empire. And you were foolish to resist. Well, thankfully... Uh, there are some heroes of our story that do, in fact, resist. And they are Mordecai and Esther. Let's see how they're introduced. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
So we have Mordecai, we have his cousin Esther, whom he is raising as his daughter, and there are two things that are highlighted for us in terms of how they're introduced. Uh, the first is that they are Jews. Uh, it's, Mordecai is called a Jew in Susa. Uh, we're also given his whole lineage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. And with Esther, we're told that she actually has two names. One is a Hebrew name, Hadassah, it's her Jewish name, and then her Persian name, uh, which is Esther. The other thing we're told uh, is um, sort of obvious. You would think you wouldn't need to mention it, but uh, it's very much emphasized that they are in exile. Uh, in fact, three times in verse 6, it says that um, the descend, or sort of the ancestors of Mordecai had been carried away. Carried away from Jerusalem, captives is carried away. The point is, look, these are Jews, but they are in exile. This is not their home. This also uh, might make us remember another famous exile uh, from the Bible, uh, who is Daniel. Remember, Daniel was taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel was in the first group of exiles with Mordecai's grandparents, probably. Uh, Daniel was also given a new name, like Esther. And Daniel was chosen to serve the empire, which is about to happen to Esther as well. So let's take a look. Here's, uh, here's verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed... And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So this is not really a big plot twist. I mean, we could see this coming, because in verse 7, we're told that Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, so she was like overqualified in terms of the criteria that they had set out. But the real question I think we should be asking is, how did Esther feel about being chosen? Because I think there would, have, there would have been a spectrum in terms of the women who were chosen. Uh, I mean, remember, the messengers were sent out into the entire Persian Empire, so from India to Africa, uh, all over the place, in small villages and towns, there were women who were, who were taken, and many of them would have been heartbroken. Uh, I mean, they're taken away from the home that they know, their families, their loved ones, all their plans for their life are all of a sudden gone off the table. Uh, they had no choice. They, they were taken and they would have been grieved by this. This would have been completely traumatic. But on the other end of the spectrum, I think there would have been many women uh, who we could reasonably say would have been eager for this. They would have seen this as an opportunity. And before you judge uh, these women, th think for a moment about what life would have been like in the ancient world. I mean, it was a very, very difficult life. Uh, everyone pretty much worked their fingers to the bone every day just to survive. There, there were no vacations, no downtime, no comforts. And life in the king's harem uh, meant an abundance of food, meant, um, meant comfort, meant luxury, meant security. And so for many women, this would have seemed like a good thing. Of all the possible, you know, uh, life roads that they could take, this would have been one. They would have, they would have jumped at the chance. So how did Esther feel? Well, for Esther, uh, there would have been an additional layer to this. There would have been a, a moral aspect of this, of this whole thing. Because as a Jew, uh, to go and to live in the palace would have meant that going against a lot of your convictions as, as a faithful Jew. For example, it would have been eating non-kosher food. All the food in the palace, they didn't, they didn't care about that. It would have meant being cut off from your community of faith. And most importantly, of course, it would mean committing adultery with a Gentile man, sleeping with the king. So no godly woman, no faithful Jew would have been at peace with being in the king's harem. So we would expect Esther to resist in, in some way uh, like Daniel did. Again, the, the story of Daniel would have come to mind because there are a lot of parallels. 
Uh, remember Daniel and his three friends, um, as soon as they got to Babylon, they were in a very similar situation. They were chosen by King Nebuchadnezzar to serve the empire. They were put under the custody of a, of a head eunuch, and his job was to train them, to feed them all the uh, good food. This was Babylon at the time, but to try to get them prepared to show them then off to the king. But see, Daniel, Daniel resisted. Daniel said this. Here's uh, Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So here we see that Daniel right away is making a stand based on his convictions. He's saying, look, here's who I am. Here's what I believe. I'm not willing to do these things. He did that a number of times in his life. But what we see here with Esther, what we're going to see is that it's actually quite a different story. See, while it's true that Esther was taken into custody, that verb doesn't necessarily imply that she resisted or that she tried to fight back, that she was taken by force, uh, because the verb is also used uh, when it talks about Mordecai. It says he took her as his own daughter, which wouldn't, doesn't mean that he forcibly took her as his daughter. It's just something that happened. In fact, the most telling verse in terms of Esther's attitude to this whole thing comes in, in the next verse, verse 9, when she's finally in the palace and she comes to, to the head uh, eunuch and, and look at what it says. And the young woman, that's Esther, pleased him, pleased Haggai, the head eunuch, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So what's very clear here is that Esther is not passive in this. Sometimes in the Bible, it will say someone finds favor, which means that God works things out so that the people are pleased with them. Notice here, it doesn't say that Esther found favor. It says that she won favor. She was actively trying to win the favor of the head eunuch. And the result was that she received cosmetics, the food, the non-kosher food that the empire provided. It advanced her position. So even though all of those things were true, even though this whole thing was all part of this twisted system to gratify the king's carnal desires, Esther participated willingly. In the kids' version, you know, Esther is always portrayed as a virtuous woman who was forced into all of this. But that's, we can't really come to that conclusion given what the text says. Now, she, she probably was very conflicted about all of this. But what's clear is that she didn't just endure the game, she, she played it to win. And in terms of understanding why, or trying to understand who she is as a person, the next couple of verses give us a bit of insight into maybe why she would have approached it this way. So here's verses 10 and 11. It says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai clearly loved Esther as his own daughter. We're going to see in a little bit, uh, next few chapters, Mordecai was uh, a man of faith. He had a real strong Jewish identity. But here, in terms of how he interacts with the empire, kind of the secular world, we see that it's very different than Daniel. Daniel stood on his convictions right away, early on, said, look, here's who I am. But Mordecai, Mordecai thinks it, it was best to kind of play your cards close to your chest. He tells Esther, look, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Just keep it to yourself. Keep it quiet. And he, and he probably had good reason for that. I mean, he'd worked in the palace for a long time. He kind of knew maybe this was the best way to kind of get along, to kind of just go with the flow. But what it, what it meant then is that Esther had the impression that really there was kind of two parts of herself. There was the Jewish self, Hadassah, and then her was her Persian self. 
And in terms of the public sphere, she was used to going with the flow. And that meant now that she was, she was in this vile audition process to be the queen, which as we get into the details of it are even more shocking than you, you might have imagined. So here's verses 12 to 14. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ashuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So, so this, frankly, is what happens when sinful self-indulgence is allowed to have free reign. I mean, this is, this is atrocious. This is an atrocious way to treat any young woman. And here we see that the king cares nothing for the women that he is, he is sleeping with. He's ruining their lives. He's doing it over and over again in this attempt to find this, this perfect queen. In fact, if you calculate the date from when Vashti was, was booted out, and then in the next few verses that we're given a date, there's actually four years between Vashti and then when Esther comes to visit the king, which means that there would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of women going through this system. All these lives upended, ruined. You know, before though, we should, we should condemn the ancient world. That might be one response for us. Man, they, they were messed up back then. Man, those kings were so selfish. But before we think that, we should recognize some connecting points between that view of, of sexuality and, and human beings and our, our world today. And I'm not just thinking about the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world or Harvey Weinstein. That I'm thinking about just the way in what passes as dating these days. I was listening to this, uh, this story uh, done by a, a female journalist. Her name was Elna Baker. And uh, she was... She was kind of reporting, giving a story on the impacts of COVID on the dating scene in New York City, because what she was noticing, what she was surprised by, is that kind of all of a sudden, uh, a lot of men were very interested in being in exclusive, committed relationships. And, and the reason is obvious, because they didn't want to isolate alone. So all of a sudden, the date she was going on, everyone wanted to, to, to be connected and, and, and to be exclusive. But here's what she said. This is why it surprised her so much. I'm going to read to you her words. She says, I'm not new to dating. And this doesn't happen. Straight men in New York City rarely want relationships. The whole game is to stay single. At best, you get invited into their harem, one of three or four people they are sleeping with. No one ever wants to eliminate the possibility of other options so quickly. Think about that for a moment. The empire that we live under right now, whatever you want to call it, Western civilization, our world, here's what it takes for a man to commit. It takes a worldwide pandemic for a man to say, I'm going I'm to settle down at least until the pandemic is over. That tells us something about the way that we see each other as human beings, especially men, sadly. What it tells us is that the sinful human heart has not changed that much in all these thousands of years. And what we should also recognize is that this is not just a problem out in the world. This is a problem in the church. This is why we have our, our Tuesday night men's group for those seeking to be free from a, from a lustful heart, from addictions to pornography, because there is hope in the gospel, hope in, in the word of God to free us from this, this wretched, devious mindset that sees other human beings as just things to be used. 
What we see here is something we already know, frankly. That, that when human sinfulness is allowed free reign, when there's no moral guidelines, everything's get worse and worse and worse. And if you're the king of Persia, there's nothing to hinder your selfish and sinful appetites. And now Esther is deep into this, this debauchery, sadly. So we're going to read just the last portion and see how this turns out. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now here I think if we look closely, we can see still the conflict for Esther. I mean, it's noted um, that she was the daughter of Abihail, the adopted daughter of Mordecai. I, I think they're emphasizing her Jewish identity, her, her Jewish faith. But then it also says that she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. I mean, she shrewdly asked the, the head of the eunuchs, what should I bring in to the king to please him? And that's what she brings with her. And the result, not surprisingly, is that the king loves her. And he puts the crown upon her head, which I think is a callback to Vashti, who refused to wear the crown and show herself to his guests. So the scene ends with celebration, feasting. The empire has got what it wanted, which is a better woman. Beautiful woman, more apparently compliant woman than Vashti. The king is happy. And when the king is happy, the empire is happy, especially when there is the remission of taxes. Everyone's celebrating. But it's tough to see this as any kind of a win for the honor of God. I mean, Esther compromised. She compromised her convictions. She broke the law of God. And, and you might fairly say, look, she didn't have a choice. I mean, this is the empire, right? Resistance is futile. They're too strong. What, what is she going to do? But there's always a choice. Ian Duguid, commenting on this, on this passage, has this line, which I think is helpful. He says, look, if, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. It's always an option. There may be consequences, but it's always an option to be faithful. We see that in the life of Daniel. That's what we see. He puts everything on the table, risks it all to honor the Lord. With Esther, we, we don't see that. At least not yet. So here's the truth about Esther. For wondering... Who was she? What is she like? She wasn't a fairy tale princess. She wasn't a Sunday school character. She was, she was a woman like us, dealing with extreme pressure, dealing with difficult situations in an environment, a world that was pressuring her to compromise her beliefs. She was just like a regular person who was struggling, struggling to remain convicted, to act out her convictions, struggling to keep her faith. And because of that, I think there's actually a lot we can learn from Esther. There's a lot that we can see here that will help us to remain people of conviction and people of faith. So, just like last week, we have three lessons. Three lessons from this portion of Esther chapter 2. Here's the first one. Compromise begins small, but it always grows. 
Compromise begins small, but it always grows. You might ask yourself, like, how did Esther get to this point? How did this, this sweet young woman get to this place of, of being in this whole uh, vile setup, willingly going along with this plan? I mean, how did she get to be in the harem of the king and then in the queen? Like, how did this happen? Well, it didn't happen with one decision. And, I, and I, would, I would argue it didn't even happen with all of Esther's decision. There were small decisions that were made in her life and in the life of her family beforehand. For example, um, you know there was an opportunity. I mentioned this last week. There was an opportunity for any Jew who wanted to to get out of the Persian Empire. I mean, years previous, King Cyrus said, look, to all the Jews, you can go back. You can rebuild the temple if you want to go. And in fact, this was a promise of God. This is part of the plan of God. Look at what he said to his people, the Jews, before they went to exile. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, when seven years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So what God told them is, look, you're going off into exile. The Babylonians are taking you, but after a certain amount of time, you're going to come back. I want you to come back to the promised land. That's my plan for you. And 44,000-ish Jews listened. They obeyed. When King Cyrus said, you can go, a whole bunch of people go, but not everyone went. Esther's grandparents didn't go. Mordecai's parents, grandparents, they didn't go. They stayed in Persia. Why? Well, probably because it seemed like the best choice to make, the easier choice, I think. Because going back to Jerusalem meant a very long journey, and at the end, there is just rubble. There's no city there. It meant a lot of hard work, no, no comforts at all, but they were living in the big city. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for employment, uh, for kind of growing your life. And so they thought to themselves, you know what, I think we'll just stay put. It seemed like a good choice, maybe a small choice. They didn't really have any impact on their faith. They weren't renouncing God. They're just saying, we're going to do that here. But what it meant was that for them and their descendants, they were now in an environment that was constantly pressuring them to compromise their faith. And it put their granddaughter in a situation where now she's, she'd be taken by the king. So a small compromise that led to bigger things. Uh, the other smaller choice or, or thing that we see here is something I already noted. That it's the way that Mordecai, his advice to Esther, remember he told her to keep her Jewish identity quiet. Now again, that must have seemed smart at the time. He must have said, look, I know what it's like in the palace. You just want to, you don't want to let too many people know too much about you. Just keep it quiet. Seemed, seemed smart, but actually what it meant was that Esther was taught that there was times when you should keep your faith to yourself, that you should compromise. And so for her then, to put her in a position where she kept compromising more and more. She didn't really know how to stand up for her faith. I think this should ring true or, or be familiar for us because we also live in a world that's pressuring us to compromise our, our faith and, and pressuring us to do things that we're not totally okay with. But when they're small things, we think to ourselves, well, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Here's a couple of ways that I've seen this happen in my life that might, might ring true for you. I, I've noticed that the more shows that I watch with questionable material, the less I begin to question the material at all. Have you noticed that? That, that when you watch certain things and, and at first that's maybe not totally appropriate, but I'm okay with it. If I keep watching those kinds of things, I end up watching things that I never would have watched in the beginning. And yet, on the flip side, if I fast from screens for a while, which I've done at certain points in time, I come back to certain shows, I'm like, I can't believe I watched that. It's not good for my heart, not good for my soul. It's the small decisions that always grow. 
shift the way that we see what's, what's good and right and pure. Uh, another example is um, I've noticed that the less that I talk about my faith, the easier it is to stay quiet about my faith. Um, there's times when I'm in a new situation with people who don't know me. Um, like I coach soccer sometimes for my, for my boys. And when there's been a new team, people who don't know me, I've noticed it's, it's really easy to not mention that I'm a pastor. Because when I mention that, people always often react the same way. They say, oh, that's great. And then we sit there awkwardly because they don't know what to say and I don't know what to say and it's always awkward. So it's easier just to not say anything. In fact, if it goes on for a while, everyone just kind of gets comfortable. It's not a big deal. But the problem with that is that I miss out on all sorts of opportunities of of how God might want to use me because there's been other times when people found out or I've I've been faithful and just told people what I do on a a Sunday morning and then they, they ask for prayer or I get to invite them to to church gathering or whatever it may be, I can see God working and I'm, I'm, I'm able to be faithful. It's always the small decisions that put us in a position where we aren't able to do the thing that God's called us to or we're doing things that really, if we're honest about it, we're, we're, we're not peaceful about it. In fact, we're sick to our stomach about it. So what do we do about this? What lessons can we take from Esther about this? Well, the answer that we see in, in the Bible is not complicated. It just requires discipline. And, and that's, of course, to be faithful in the small things. So that you, don't have to, you don't have to try to be faithful in the big things. You don't put yourself in a position where you're, you're compromised morally in some big thing because you've been, you've been faithful and true in the smaller things. Uh, there's a writer uh, who's not, not Christian. Um, his name's Tanahisi Coates. And uh, he's an atheist, in fact. But... Um, I came across this little section from him with practical wisdom that I thought really applies in this situation. So here's what he says. He says, I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son, but that's not because I'm an especially good and true person. In fact, I'm wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind, but I'm also a dude who believes in guardrails. As a buddy of mine once put it, I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. There's wisdom in that. In fact, biblical wisdom. The Bible tells us to flee evil, to turn away from sin, to to put it to death in our lives because it's dangerous, it's evil, it will always lead us astray. And so the wisdom here is that we, we need guardrails. We need to think in our lives and think to ourselves, where am I tempted? Where am I tempted to compromise? I need to make sure that I have guardrails up, where I, where I make decisions in strength so that I don't put myself in a position where, where I can fail morally or compromise myself morally. That, that probably involves uh, asking other people for help, for accountability, whole manner of things that require discipline. Discipline because we don't trust ourselves, we trust God. We trust his wisdom, we trust his leading in our lives, and we want to be faithful in the small things and the big things. It's the first thing. Compromise starts small, it gets bigger. Secondly, secondly, failure doesn't disqualify us from God's plan. It's pretty clear by this point in Esther that Esther is no Daniel. But listen, how many of us are? I don't think many of us would say that we're, we're the Daniel. We're the one who's always standing up in every situation. Most of us would say, look, look, there's a struggle in our lives. We struggle with failure. We struggle with moral compromise. That's just the nature of what it means to be human. The hope of the story of Esther is not that we can be this this paragon of virtue and faith. The hope of the story of Esther is that God still uses her in spite of her failure, in spite of her compromise. 
And in fact, God gives her an opportunity for greater obedience down the road. Amazingly, Esther's legacy is still a legacy of faith and courage. And that's going to happen in chapter 4, even though chapter 2 exists. Even though on the way up, there's compromise, her legacy is one of, of honoring the Lord. And the thing is that that's the same for all of us. Every Christian's story is, is a story of failure and grace, of sin and redemption. That's the whole nature of the gospel. That's, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus is that we come empty-handed, we come broken. There's, there's no requirements. There's no entrance exam. God loves us. God restores us. God heals us. The, the question is for us, what do we focus on? What do we allow uh, to define us and, and to consume our minds and our hearts in terms of how we see ourselves? Because our, our own sin, our own brokenness, the, the enemy of our souls wants us to believe and emphasize the areas where we failed. To, to keep bringing to mind those times when we haven't been faithful, where we, we missed the opportunity, where we, we stepped again and again into sin and to say, look, that's who you are. How could God love you? Look at you. You're a mess. But in fact, that's not how the Bible talks about us. That's not how God thinks about us. We're told over and over again throughout scripture that God is full of grace and compassion and love and especially in Christ. He sees us not in our failures but in the radiance of the obedience of Christ. So look, if you're, if you're someone that struggles with that, I think we all do from time to time, I'd encourage you, this next verse I'm gonna read, I would just print it out at home and uh, put it up somewhere where you're gonna see it every day and just just tell yourself over and over again, this is how God sees me. This is what God sees when he looks at me. Here's Psalm 103, verses 10 to 13. It says, God, he, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See, failure does not disqualify us from God's plans. He is full of grace, full of, grace, full of compassion, full of love. When he looks at us, he sees all that he is already doing in us. He sees the work of Jesus on the cross to wipe away our sin. He sees all that is possible because of his power and his strength. And so when we think of ourselves, when we picture ourselves walking through this life, we shouldn't see ourselves always looking back to what we've done in the past or looking down because of our shame. We should see us walking forward, looking up at the God who saved us, looking forward to the other opportunities he will give us because the amazing thing is he does give us more and more opportunities to show our faithfulness, to show our obedience, to show all the good things that he is working in us for our good and for his glory. So thankfully, because of the grace of God, failure does not disqualify us. Don't believe the lie that it does. The third lesson, the third lesson is this. We should be captivated by true beauty. The emphasis there is on the true. We should be captivated by true beauty. See, the thing about this whole passage is that um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on physical beauty. Uh, the women are put through this 12-month spa treatment um, with spices and oils and stuff, and the whole goal of this uh, 12 months is to maximize their physical beauty, which, which should also sound fairly familiar to us. Because in our culture, 
Physical beauty is also emphasized uh, a whole bunch. I, I mean, it's use any metric you want for looking at our society, and, and it will tell you that physical beauty is sort of preeminent, right? The fashion industry, cosmetic industry, advertising. Primarily, what we see happening in this passage is, is the main problem, that men then objectify women see them as objects to be used to gratify their own pleasure. But what we should note is that this emphasis on physical beauty is not just a problem for men, it's also a problem for women. And by that I mean it, it really influences the way that women see themselves. Uh, I noted this uh, this week, I was listening to another podcast, which I do all the time, and um, this time it was an interview uh, with some teenage girls and they were talking about the way that they uh, interact on Instagram. And what the interviewer was asking them was about the comments that their friends, who are girls, would make about the pictures that they put up. So they'll put a picture of themselves up, and the comments uh, from their friends, not, not boys, they, they, they don't care about them, but the girls in their life, they would say things like this, stunning, beautiful, amazing, gorgeous. They would just, all these comments... And they would always do that to each other. They said there's kind of an obligation. If you're a good friend, you are going to comment about how beautiful they look as soon as they put up a picture. And the, you know, the interviewer is saying, why, why do you do this? Like, what does it mean? They say, well, it's just our way of, of, of affirming each other, of, of showing each other love, of showing that, that we're, we're good friends. They're saying it kind of lifts us up, which you can understand. We all like to hear that about ourselves. But what's not so clear is how detrimental this is to our sense of self. This emphasis on physical beauty leads to all sorts of problems that we can also see in our culture. For example, it just leads to people using each other rather than really caring about each other. It leads to body image problems, leads to insecurity, it leads to rampant lust, which leaves people unsatisfied and, and discontent. It leads to, pro leads to problems later on in life, relationally, when people get older and, and our looks fade and then we find ourselves looking for someone else who's more attractive. Marriages fall apart or torn apart by this obsessiveness around physical beauty. Here's the interesting thing, though, in, in the Bible. The Bible doesn't deny physical beauty. If you notice that, it's interesting that Esther is called a beautiful woman. That Sarah, Abraham's wife, is called a beautiful woman. It, it doesn't deny it, but what it says very, very clearly is that we should not trust it. We should not be captivated by it. That we should, we should see people the way that God sees people. Remember David, he, he saw David, he looked at his heart. That was what was most important. Not, not King Saul, who was big and strong. God wanted someone whose heart was right and pure. Look at this verse from 1 Peter, uh, written to, to women here in the New Testament. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 says, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That, that phrase there, imperishable beauty, is what I want us to grab hold of, that there is a kind of beauty that is good and true and does not fade, and that kind of beauty is an inner beauty. Which sounds, sounds kind of trite, right? Sounds like something you'd see in a, in a greeting card, but, it, but if you think about, think about the things in life that, that truly captivate us, that truly move us, that are truly beautiful, is it not times when people are loving each other in a sacrificial way? When people are caring for each other in a humble way? When people are doing things to show that their love for someone is not about the way that they look, but it's just simply who they are? See, all of that comes from, from character. 
And what we see in the Bible, interestingly, is that in fact, God is taking us through a beautification process. It's not only 12 months long. There's no oils or spices involved. I don't, I don't think. It, it's about shaping us as a person. And the way that he does it is through trials and challenges and tests, all designed to strengthen our character and deepen our faith. The goal for every Christian is for us to become like Jesus, like the most beautiful being in the universe. And by that, we don't mean that he's handsome. We mean that he's pure, that he's righteous, that he's true. And because God loves us, he wants for us to be captivated by his beauty so that by the end of our lives, we are, we are genuinely beautiful. That people would look at us and they would see, in fact, the image of Christ. And that's actually the picture we get uh, in the book of Revelation. If you remember last week, we looked at the section looking at a feast that's at the end of the Bible, the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a better feast than the feast that, uh, that Esther got. I want to look back at two verses here that, that highlight this. Look at this. So it says, it says, for the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come, and his bride, uh, that's the church, that's us. So the, the church has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, what it's saying there is that when we finally come to meet Jesus, we will be beautiful and radiant and majestic and gorgeous, but by that it means that we will be morally pure. That, that all the work of God in our lives will mean that because of Jesus on the cross, our sins are wiped away, and also because of us working out our faith with, with with every incremental step each and every day, we'll be clothed in righteousness. We will, we will be a mirror to reflect the beauty and the glory of God. That is the imperishable beauty. That is the thing that should captivate us because when it does, it, it transforms us. It means that we can see people as they truly are, image bearers of God. And it means we can see that which is truly important to show love and grace and compassion and to turn away from evil, to turn away from selfishness and vanity. It means that in the end, we will be transformed from the inside out, not, not from the outside in as our, as our culture tries to do. So listen, Esther was not Cinderella. Uh, Esther was not a, a, a perfect uh, example of faithfulness, and neither are we. And that's okay. That's okay because the Bible is all about the grace of God, the compassion of God. But we aren't simply taken in our, in our failings, in our moral compromises, and left like that. By the grace of God, we are also compelled to change, compelled to pursue true beauty. And so my encouragement to you is that if we're struggling with a sense of who we are, let us look to Christ let us look to who he is and what he represents about God and to see that in that is true satisfaction, true joy, true peace. And as we pursue that, we can really reflect all the things that are beautiful about our world and all the ways that God wants to use us to accomplish his purposes, just like he did with Esther. So let me pray for us as we close and let's honor the Lord for what he's done. Lord Jesus, I do thank you I thank you for all the ways in which you've worked in us as a people. I thank you individually for, for myself, Lord, how you've redeemed me from my own sin. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us. Help us to identify those, those small compromises that are leading us astray. 
Help us, Lord, to identify those times when we are captivated by beauty that is vain, beauty that is superficial, that will lead us farther and farther away from you. Help us, Lord, to love people the way that you do. Not because of the way we look on the outside, but because of our heart. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done on the cross for us. I pray that you would indeed clothe us in righteousness and that we would walk in righteousness so that we would honor the Lord and so that we would fulfill the plans you have for our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us not to compromise. Help us indeed to honor you with everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.